John 14, verses 28 to 31. That's where we are today. John 14, 28 to 31. And I just want to say that I'm happy, very happy, to be part of a church that truly believes that Jesus is worthy. It's just not always true with places that wear the title church. They have some other ultimate, some other thing. I know that to be true here, not because you guys got it all figured out or that I'm some fantastic leader. It's the Spirit of God that makes us know these things, that takes it from the head and, and puts it into the heart so that you don't just like fake it till you make it, but it's actually something within you. So we praise the Spirit for how He's opened our eyes to the beauty and goodness of the Son. And we'll continue to see that in our text today. John 14, and we're going to finally finish out this chapter by looking at verses 28 to 31 in particular. We're continuing from last week. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. To students, current and former, imagine with me for a moment a world without report cards. Imagine a world where you never receive a number or a letter grade for your work. No tests, no exams, no ACTs, SATs, GPAs. Serious question here. How many of you would love or would have loved that? Wow, I'm surprised. Okay, so here's the opposite question. How many of you would loathe or hate not having grades? (laughs) Oh, you're funny. (laughs) Believe it or not, Letter grades were not widespread use here in the United States until the 1940s. In fact, as recent as 1971, only 67% of elementary and high schools in the U.S. had letter grades. I know some of the younger are stunned. It's, a, it's kind of an interesting history where they came from. 
I know some of you are thinking, like, how in the world do you do school and have a grade? Well, we've been doing it a long time, folks. The first instance of, um, I mean, if you try to trace it back, you go to 1785, Yale University, and the president, Ezra Stiles, implemented the first grading scale that anybody had heard of here in the continental United States. Uh, it had four descriptions, all in Latin, of course, optimi, second optimi, inferiores, and pejoris. Um, you can kind of get the idea if you know a little bit of Latin. It's like the A, B, C, D. But uh, even that, though, is interesting because those were internal grades. The students never saw them because they didn't want them competing with one another. They wanted them focused on the content. But even 1785 wasn't the first expression of this. If you go back a little farther, Harvard did some standardized testing as well, and they required exit exams in 1646. So it wasn't like a letter grade, but you did have to pass like a final test that kind of lets you know whether you had succeeded or not. But it didn't even start there. It goes back a little further. Neil Postman tells of this in his book, uh, Technopoly. By the way, cool book. Written in like 1992, and he like forecast everything that technology would do to mess us up, and he was right. <laughs> but in it, he talks about numbers and a grading system being a technology that had not always existed. So he traces it back even further. Uh, to something a little more concrete. Cambridge University, 1792, there's this guy named William Farish. And he was the first one that anyone knows of that came up with a quantitative value that would be assigned to human thought. Like now all of a sudden, you know, like he was the one that like opened the door on us using numbers and letters to describe things that were otherwise undescribable. Like, how, how do we actually quantify things like mercy and love and hate and beauty and creativity and intelligence? I mean, can you really go through an art museum and say, hmm, Mona Lisa, I give it a 9.5, you know? Like, we're quantifying stuff in education that just can't be quantified. To say that someone should be doing, I'm reading here, someone should be doing better work because he has an IQ of 134, or that someone has, is a 7.2 on a sensitivity scale, or that this man's essay on the rise of capitalism is an A, and that that man's is a C plus, would have sounded like gibberish to Galileo, Shakespeare, or even Thomas Jefferson. Like we measure things too quickly, too easily. And yet, knowing the inherent danger of grades, you know, like the person who just passes the test or just gets by, we still need some way to make an assessment, right? Like, we've got stuff we need to do. We have things that we need to be prepared for. How, how do we know? Especially in matters of eternal and spiritual significance, whether or not we're making the grade, whether or not we, we live up to the expectation, whether or not we're meeting the standard. I think it's something that we all want to know, and that's well represented by the split decision in the room. Half of you do want to know the grade, and half of you don't. It may be that some of you are scared of finding out where you really are, 
And some of you think you want to know the grade because you're better off, you think you're better off than you actually are. How do we know if we're on track in the eternal realm, in the spiritual realm? How do we know if we're on track, if we're, if we're headed in the right direction in our discipleship with Jesus? Are there any concrete indicators of whether or not we're passing or failing? Is there any way we can know that on that great day, on that final exam, if you will, for, for final judgment before the Lord Jesus Himself, on whether or not we, we're actually going to be one of the ones that quote-unquote pass? We want a number. We want clarity. But it just seems to elude us. I'm pointing this out to you, friends, because I think that there are many in the room today, I say this compassionately, not self-righteously, I see this in myself at times, I think there are many of you who are walking in your relationship with Jesus, and you are utterly insecure. (laughs) You just think, something's off, I don't know what it is, like, I'm pretty sure if I was getting a grade that is probably not failing, but it's probably around D or C territory... Underconfident Christian living. It plagues many. I sense it with many. I would say, and again, no offense, I say it with most. Very rarely do I meet anyone in the congregation who says, you know what, spiritually, I'm just killing it these days. (laughs) And yet among us, with some, And I don't know my role here interpersonally, so just please don't be offended by this. But I do sense with some of us an overconfidence. I think there are some among us, I do this from time to time too, where we figured out some ways to measure things that Jesus never gave us to measure, and we're like, hmm, I'm doing pretty good. I give to the church. I show up. 60% of the time. I even attend a small group every once in a while. You know what? I read my Bible three times last week. And I listen to Christian radio. And you just think you're killing it. But you may be grading the wrong thing. We need something better. We need a better way to assess whether or not we're truly growing in this journey with Jesus, whether or not we're truly progressing. And in this text, Jesus provides something better. We've been discussing the learning outcomes of Jesus' class in the upper room. If this were like an official like beginning to a college course, uh, the name of the course here would be um, Preparation for the Death and Departure of Jesus. So that's the class that we've signed up for over these last few weeks together. Whether or not we're prepared to live in light of the death and departure of Jesus. So if that's the course title, here are the intended outcomes. Like That's what this text is about. By the end of this course, you should be able to, and that's what we're filling in. That's what we're seeing. We saw two of them last week. One of the intended outcomes is firmer truth. You should walk out confident knowing that you have firmer truth. You're you're more solid than ever that God has revealed Himself in His Word through the Spirit. 
That's an intended outcome of everything that he's taught up to this point. You should be confident in the truth. The second outcome that we looked at was deeper peace. (laughs) By the time the class is over, you should have more peace, a deeper peace, than anything that the world could ever give you. We saw that in verse 27. And then the last two outcomes that Jesus lists here, and I say them so that you could write them down if it would be beneficial, are a higher love, and a stronger faith. A higher love and stronger faith. The content of the course, if you wanted the course outline, everything that we've seen up to this point in chapter 14, Jesus is preparing them by telling them and assuring them of all the stuff that He's going to give them in His absence. And this is just to review the last few weeks. What are those things? A place prepared, a way made, the Father revealed, works enabled, obedience assisted. Like, he's just saying, hey, in my absence, I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to go. I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, the Spirit's going to help you. And in light of that, those outcomes that I'm describing should be true of you. You should have these things. You should be looking for these things. You're not looking for a number. You're not looking for a letter. You're looking for firmer truth and deeper peace and higher love. Like that, these are the things that we are looking out for. So, having already looked at the first two learning outcomes, let's now remind ourselves of the final two. Look at verse 28 again, where we see the third outcome of this upper room discourse. Here's how we know we're prepared in light of Jesus' absence. He says, you'll have a higher love. Let's read his words, not mine. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, note it one more time. Jesus is saying, hey, let me tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everything I've been talking about. (laughs) this is interesting, like five different times in these few verses, he says, hey, I've been telling you this stuff. I've been telling you about this. I've been telling you about this. One more time, he points us back to something he's already told us. And he's not pointing to everything he's ever taught on. He's specifically referencing that which he has discussed in chapter 14. And if you want to know the primary referent of what he's discussing here, you look at verse 3. What did he say in verse 3? I go and prepare a place for you If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So what aspect of the teaching is Jesus referring to? The very one where he said, hey, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to go be with the Father, but then I'm going to come back and bring you into the Father's presence. You remember that lesson very well. But notice here what he's saying that this announcement should produce within them. He's saying that it should actually produce within them joy. That's an intended outcome. He told them that in part so that they would actually be happy. Now I want you to think about that for a second. How in the world is Jesus saying that He's going to be gone, going to make anybody happy? What kind of weird relationship is that? Like, he's gone. Well, Jesus explains. 
He says it very simply here. I'm going away. I will come to you. But if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Notice that Jesus has this fascinating reason for why he thinks we should be happy and hopeful in light of the fact that he's gone. And listen to this. I, this, is, this is not new territory. This is the Bible. It's just one of those things I honestly have never seen before. Don't worry. I'm not the only one that's ever seen it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I've never noticed it before. Jesus actually expects us to be happy in his absence because he's with his Father. Why, why should we be happy that He's with His Father? He gives the reason. He says, for the Father is greater than I. Now, for the careful theologians in the room, that is a troubling statement because you're like, what? John 1.1 told us that Jesus was the Word, and the, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the same was in the beginning with God. Or in, in John chapter 10, He says, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Like, we've seen all this stuff in John where Jesus has said over and over and over again that I and the Father are equals in our, in our essence and who we are in our divinity. So what in the world does Jesus mean here when He says, the Father is greater than I? By the way, whole heresies, like whole-blown, straight-up cults that knock on your doors on Saturday mornings have come from this one verse? How do we understand it? Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You understand it the way you understand anything. You look at it in its context. In the context here, what is Jesus talking about? I mean, the word greater means that it exceeds the standard. It is, it is bigger, larger, or better than average, correct? At least Merriam-Webster says so. But that doesn't tell us anything. Better than what? Better in what way? How is he better? That's the question before us. Well, context determines that. If I were to tell you, in the context of talking about my basketball skills, or lack thereof, that LeBron James is greater than I. Who in their right mind is going to think, James is ontologically superior to Justin. He's more human than Justin is. You know what you hear in that? What you expect to hear. James is a better basketball player than Justin, by far. The context was telling us that we were talking about basketball. Therefore, greater in this instance is going to clarify in what way this greatness is displayed. What is Jesus talking about here? What's the context? He's talking about whether he's on earth in his humanity or whether he's in heaven in his humanity. Which one's greater? To be on earth or to be in heaven? To be in this place where God's glory is, is shown imperfectly in a, in a fallen world or to be like at the source. Jesus is saying the Father's greater than I. It makes sense that I would want to be where He is. Even theologically, we know from Philippians 2 that He was equal with the Father and yet He took on humanity 
and entered into this world making Himself a servant. The second person of the Godhead, God the Son, willingly submitted Himself to God the Father in coming into this world to die for human sin. Like, He he put on, like, humanity fully. Which means that naturally, the Father represents something greater than anyone who is human. Ontologically, by being, by essence, they're the same. But functionally, in role, Jesus has submitted. And so he says, look, I get to go back to the source. I get to go back to where I once enjoyed the glory of the Father, fully, finally, perfectly. Let me give you a, a little illustration. I love the way that some of the, uh, the old dudes, like I'm talking old, old, 5th century, like 400s A.D., would describe the Trinity. One of them was a guy named uh, Gregory of Nyssa. And he actually says that, no, again, all, fail, I mean, excuse me, all analogies of the Trinity fail eventually. So please do not over-evaluate this. But this one's good. He says basically the relationship between the Son and the Father is like that between a lamp and its light. The Father is the source, the Son is the beam. You can't have the beam without the source, and you're not going to have the source without the beam. I think of a, of a, of a well, if you will, or a spring. If you've ever seen those, Florida is full of them. Not down here, but in the northern part of the state, there's all these beautiful little creeks and tributaries and things that are just flowing out. And there's such like crystal clear water. You're like, where does it come from? There's this spring somewhere. <laughs> and I had the privilege of going to one of those a couple years ago and just seeing this massive hole. It's crystal clear. You can look down as far as you can and you jump in the water and it's pure and cold and very cold. <laughs> it's the source. Jesus, as the spring, gets to go back to the source of the Father's glory, His goodness, His grace. Think about it this way. If you want to be in the Father's presence, John 14, 3, like we're like, man, just, I want to escape the fallenness of this world. I want to be with the Father one day. Like, why wouldn't Jesus have the opportunity to be with the Father? And so the point is, Jesus gets to experience something greater, someone greater, something better than, than this fallen earthly existence. And He's saying like, If you loved me, you would be happy that I get to enjoy the presence of the Father. So how does this uh, practically translate? Well, let me bridge from the uh, familiar to the unfamiliar. Jesus' joy in the Father's presence should spark the disciples' joy in Jesus' absence. So, let's ask ourselves. um, How does somebody going away give us the opportunity to love? pretty easy. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that a close family member or a friend wins one of those like all expense paid vacations to Hawaii. There's a couple ways you can respond. Uh, One would be jealousy. The unloving response. In a rather grumbly tone, you say in your mind, you never say it out loud, you smile and cheese it. But you would say, why in the world does she get to go off to Hawaii? While I stick it out here. It's not fair that they get to enjoy all this accommodation and all this luxury. Like, I've been working hard, why didn't I win? 
That's one response. Another one could be the self-serving response. You know what? It's cool if they go to Hawaii as long as they bring me something back. I want some merch. And if I can get that, it's, it's okay. But we all know what the, the right and loving response would be. Whether we say it out loud or not, you get to go to Hawaii? That's fantastic. You're going to have a great time. I'm so happy for you. Right? That's just how you respond. If something good happens to someone that you love, are you happy for them? Even if it means that they'll be taken away from you temporarily? Up to this point, Jesus' despairing disciples had only considered themselves. They were not thinking in terms of Jesus' joy, but only their own. And we do the same stinking thing. Friends, it's that tension. You're an American, I'm an American. Well, most of you are Americans, I'm sorry. I know we have visitors. But especially in the West, like we have this weird tension. I'm going to get philosophical for just a second. Hang with me. Between freedom and belonging. Like we're like, I want to be free. This is the land of liberty. Just let me do my thing. But we're lonely. I just read a statistic yesterday. It blew my mind. 47% of Americans feel lonely even in a crowd. 60% feel lonely on a regular basis and like they have no relationship. We long for community, for relationship, but they're in tension. Because like as soon as you like get relationship and you're with somebody, you have to give up the freedom, (laughs) the autonomy. What was the, uh, the Spanish proverb about men and their love? He who, has won, I mean, he who has loved one has loved them all. He who has loved them all has loved none. We want intimacy. We want engagement. We want exclusivity. We want to be close. And yet that comes at the cost of full autonomy. I don't think what we've realized that in coming into a relationship with Jesus... We gave up some autonomy. And guess what? In relationships, the other person's feelings matter too. And maybe it's never struck you. Maybe you just assumed that Jesus was this kind of ethereal spirit that floats in the sky, kind of like Aladdin and the genie. And that there's no real, like, it's just all get and no give. But in a relationship, you give a rip about what the other person thinks and feels and wants. Surprise! That's what you signed on to. A relationship. And Jesus is assuming here that if you love Him, you would actually be happy in His absence that He gets to enjoy the presence of the Father. Can I ask you a question? Has there ever been a time, I've said this to myself this week, has there ever been a time in your life where you're like, you know what, I wish Jesus were here right now, but it's okay because He gets to enjoy the presence of the Father. Confession. Ready? Never, never had I ever thought that in my life. And yet Jesus says, this is what I want you thinking as I'm gone. I get to be with the Father. Let's review. We're talking about here outcomes of Christ's teaching in His absence. Now think about this for a moment, even in light of what's happening. 
What does God want us to have experientially in light of Jesus' teaching? He says, firmer truth. We need to be confident that what God says is true. Second, deeper peace. Even in tumultuous situations, what is true, what is real, what is right is not the medical well-being of any individual at any given moment, but their relationship with God. There is an established peace that's already been there, and Jesus specifically says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Keep in mind that these things happen, but things are still right between you and God because of what's happened with Jesus uh, in Him. He's died. He's risen again. And then here we've been contemplating as well uh, this just very clear call for us to have a higher love We need to be concerned about more that's going on in time of trial than just me, myself, and I. And what I was trying to communicate, and what I hope that we're grasping, is that, friends, Jesus actually intends for us to be so grateful for what He's done, to be so enamored with who He is, that we would actually display a love for Him, that we would care what He thinks and what He gets to experience. I mean, like, He's the one that gets to go ahead and be with the Father. How many times have you solaced yourself at the death of a loved one in Christ saying this, they're in a better place. They're in a better place. Why would we never then apply that to Jesus? I see it all the time in those who are grieving. They say, oh, I just feel so guilty. I just, but I know that they're in a better place. I comfort myself in thinking they're in a better place. Jesus is saying, if you can do that for your mother or your brother or your loved one or your friend, do it for me. Comfort yourself that I am in the Father's presence. I think this shows us something about our, ourselves, friends, when we've never considered whether or not like Jesus' feelings and experience has any bearing on our well-being. Things are good with our Lord, the one that we love, and therefore we should be happy. He's with the Father. But I give you a warning, and I think that this is imperative. I would want to broaden this out to say that genuine Christianity cares about Christ. I say this, please don't miss it. If you're genuinely a Christian, you care about Christ. It's interesting to me that um, Martin Luther, in particular, described sin as us turning in on ourselves. I'm quoting here, Scripture describes man as so curved in on himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all these things seeks only himself. Did you know that when you come to faith in Jesus, that inward turn of the soul is still there? It's possible for you to only come to Jesus for what He could give to you, but not what you could give to Him? He's warning us against that. We were created by God, friends, to love Him supremely. And yet in sin, we have turned inward, rejecting God and giving our greatest adoration to the Almighty Self. And this is most often Hear me carefully. This is most often revealed in trials. The first time things go sideways in your life or mine, what do we start saying? Why did this happen to me? Why am I going through this? I don't want to experience this. I didn't want this to happen. 
And yet what is actually offered to us here is that there may be something bigger going on. How many times when you've experienced acute duress, some kind of trial, you said, you know what, I wonder what Jesus gets from this. I wonder how this could glorify and honor the Lord Jesus. It's not our instinct. We're selfish. And it's okay. We're new to the relationship. It's like the husband who gets married thinking that he loves his wife more than anyone ever. And yet, at the same time, he only then begins to realize how selfish he is. Oh, and then, by the way, you start throwing kids in the mix, and now you really realize what a jerk you are. It's a relationship. You've moved into something greater. And at the similar way, Jesus here is trying to point out like, hey, in your despair, in your trial, in your depression, in what it is that you're dealing with in this time, there's something else going on. Care about me. I just say this as as a kind warning. If your relationship with Jesus is to such a degree that you don't care anything about Him, you should probably be examining whether or not you're actually in a relationship with Him. You can talk to me. You can talk to another elder if that's the case. But whatever the American conception of Christianity that's been passed down that it's just about making your life more beautiful and easy and convenient, like if you've bought into that and you've never considered that this is a two-way relationship in which you love Him in response to His love for you, you may be in eternal peril. One of the outcomes of Jesus teaching here is that we would have a higher love. So not only would we have a higher love, but there's a second thing here, or a fourth thing, if you will. Higher love was the third. The fourth one, the fourth outcome, is that there would be a a stronger faith. Stronger faith. Let's look at this in verses 28 or 29 to 31. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. You see it there? I'm hoping that in this you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Surprise, surprise, friends. Jesus once more references in His teaching the stuff that He's told them before it takes place. And what is it that He is specifically referring to here? It's the fact that He's going to die. He's laid it out for them clearly, and He's saying that my death is actually supposed to strengthen your faith. They've already begun to believe in Jesus for what reason? Do you remember? Because of His signs, because of the miraculous things that He had done. The victories, if you will, the glory. But now he says, even in my death, I actually intend for you to look upon this and have your faith strengthened. So how does that work? How does the death of Jesus strengthen our faith? Because what it seems like is that it's the ultimate defeat. I mean, if you didn't know the Christian story and you're thinking that this guy's the hero of the world, there is no way on earth that he ever dies. And what does Jesus say here? I'm telling you ahead of time. I want you to get it. This is all part of the plan. There's nothing accidental here. It is intentional. I will die. And as you grasp that, your faith will be strengthened. He's calling it before it happens. 
You know, it reminds me of the pilot who's announcing turbulence before it gets there. And your confidence in him increases after the turbulence more than it did before. He called it. It's like the physician who tells the little child, hey, there's going to be a little pinch when you get this immunization, but it's going to help you in the long run. At four or five years old, they don't understand the little pinch, but once they finally do read like some high school stuff level and, you know, medicine, they're like, oh, <laughs> the pinch wasn't all terrible. Something good came on the other end. Like, you learn to trust when people can predict pain and failure ahead of time. Jesus here, though, is not just saying there's going to be a little bit of turbulence. He's not just saying there's going to be just a little pinch in the arm. He's saying that the pilot's going to die. He's saying that there won't just be a pinch, but there will be a murder. This is huge. And yet he intends for that to actually strengthen their faith. This is a great irony, dear brother and sister, when you consider that God Himself intends for the cross to create and to confirm faith in you. The cross of Christ is intended by God Almighty to create and confirm faith in you. Or in those you love. How many times do we try to, to argue for the existence of, of God or the, prove and argue for uh, the credibility of Christianity and we, we try to point to things like uh, science and the natural order and law and conscience and yet what Paul would regularly lean into was the cross of Jesus. That was supposed to be the greatest proof that God indeed did what He said He was going to do. It's the cross. He gloried in the cross. He boasted in the cross. This death was by design. Notice, this disclosure of death ahead of time is not only designed to strengthen the faith of the believer, but it starts faith in unbelievers. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Now, pause. Here, Jesus is noting that he will die at the hands of evil forces. It's funny, I, I was preaching on this a few weeks ago, and we were talking about Jesus' oversight of evil, and I realized that for some this was a struggle, and I, I don't try to be pejorative, I'm trying to be faithful to the text. But here's another instance, just in case you were struggling with it last time, where Jesus is saying, like, I know the ruler of this world is coming. What has happened up to this point? Who is the ruler of the world? It is none other than Satan himself, that evil entity who wants to steal and kill and destroy, the one who rejoices in our rebellion against God because he knows it will lead to our righteous execution for all eternity. Like, it is the ruler of this world that enters into Judas, interestingly, to try to extinguish the light who is Jesus. We already saw that back in John. And Jesus was the one that said, hey, go do your thing and do it quickly. Here, Jesus is saying, the ruler of this world is coming. What is he talking about? Judas has already gone. He's already paid the 30 pieces of silver. The authorities are on their way to find Jesus as he's speaking. The ruler of this world is coming. But notice what Jesus says in light of this. This is so encouraging. It's so helpful. He has no claim on me. Though the ruler of this world is coming, though my death is imminent, he has no claim on me. That's legal terminology, friends. 
It basically is the stuff you'd find in a courtroom. This statute doesn't apply here. You can't sue me for that. Like, this is being dismissed out of court. This is not Satan's jurisdiction. Though he is the ruler of the world, Jesus is the greater ruler still. And notice what he says. This wasn't a cosmic accident, the cross. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The death of of Jesus, friends, was no cosmic accident. It It happened at the Father's command and as an expression of the Son's love. The death of Jesus was no cosmic accident. It happened at the Father's command and as an expression of the Son's love. You just kind of like, some people think that the cross was just this like big oops. Like, oh no. <laughs> or almost like a, a Cinderella team in the NCAA tournament. We're thinking about that this week, right? I'm not because my team's not going to be in it. But normally, this time of year, I would be thinking about it. And you just see the upsets and you're like, oh, that's devastating. That should have never happened. Some people look at the cross that way. They're like, oh, that's so unfortunate. And I can't believe that Satan pulled off that win. And yet, what does the text say? It says specifically that Jesus is doing as the Father commanded Him. The Father actually commanded the Son to be crucified? That's what... um, John 3, 16 and 17 tell me. You remember that one? For God the Father so loved the world that He gave, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then listen to verse 17 because we never quote it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He sent him. He commissioned him. He said, go do this. He put him on an errand. Jesus was obeying the Father. We need to stay on guard, friends, against the heretical lie that God the Father is in some way the mean one and Jesus is somehow the nice one. It's a very subtle lie that that we buy into from time to time. The Father sent the Son. This was the Father's plan from the very beginning. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 8-10. to 10. God is love. Amen? It continues. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God, the Father, sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He, God the Father, loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the the righteous satisfaction for our sins. Octavius Winslow. You may not know that name. I've heard him quoted often, um, but I didn't realize who he was until this week. He was like a popular Christian pastor contemporary with two guys that some of you may know. Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle. So, he's just able expositor of the time, up there with those guys, but they kind of outshine him. He had a knack for putting things into a memorable way that you and I could grasp. He asks, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father 
for love. It was all part of the plan. Friends, that should strengthen your faith or start your faith. This wasn't the cosmic accident that God had to somehow like pull out of the ditch. Like this was the plan from the very beginning. It was not only an expression of the Father's command, but it was also an expression of the Son's love. Notice that Jesus even says here that I want the world to know that I love you. Nope. I want the world to know that I love the Father. Have you ever thought about that? It's like Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus did what He did for me. That's true. He did it for you. But He did it first and foremost out of love for His Father. By the way, not out of compulsion or fear of His Father, but out of love for His Father. Some liberals will try to claim that uh, the crucifixion is actually uh, a, a grand scale of cosmic child abuse. As if Jesus was sent to the cross kicking and screaming. It said that he, he did it willingly. He did it for the pleasure that was set before Him. He wanted to do this because He loved His Father. The Son wants the world to know that He didn't do anything wrong. His death was actually doing something right. The Father loved humanity and wanted us to be reconciled to Him. And so He sent His Son, and His Son lovingly, willingly, joyfully came and died on our behalf. As opposed to the death of Jesus weakening faith, He actually intended for it to strengthen it. It is the death and departure of Jesus that produces strong faith. This was true of the reformer that I mentioned earlier, Martin Luther. Some of you may know him as like this bigger-than-life kind of individual, very uh, bold, outgoing. And yet his biographers record, and I'm quoting here, Luther often described himself as an anxious young man, so wrapped up in himself that every little thing frightened him. Even the sound of a leaf blown in the wind could make him flee. Can you imagine that? For, like for those of you who know Luther, like this scared individual, this insecure guy, he certainly was that. When you read his biography, he was so scared that he was going to go to hell, that he would do anything to work himself out of it. He'd take pilgrimages to Rome. He would pray longer than anybody else. The dude was scared to death. And yet, one of his biographers, Roland Bainton, recounts these final words about Luther in his biography and what made the difference. He says, No longer did Luther tremble at the rustling of a wind-blown leaf. And instead, calling upon St. Anne, he declared himself able to laugh at thunder and jagged bolts from out of the storm. This his understanding of what God had accomplished in Christ is what enabled him to utter such words as these. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. You feel scared? You feel insecure? You feel like your faith is weak? You look to the cross. That's what calms the anxious soul. The cross of Christ creates and confirms confidence. 
Friends, the cross is what starts our faith. Listen to this. I know that we don't talk this way often. I should talk this way more. Forgive me. But it is only the cross of Jesus that fully starts our understanding of the heinousness of sin. We know like inherently that sin's bad and we shouldn't do it, but when you see the Son of God suffering, bleeding, dying, and all of His innocence and all of His righteousness on a tree for you, you think, what in the world happened? Like, is it that bad? It's that bad. It convinces us of our sin, but it also convinces us of our Savior. He outlasted the wrath. He fully absorbed it in His death on the cross. And now we have life. The only thing that is good about us, despite our rebellion against God, is that we've been reconciled because of what Jesus did. That is our confidence. It's not because we came from the right family or we scored the right test scores or that we've accomplished the right things in our job or that people like us or that we've got a nice place to live or that we've got money in the bank. Like our righteousness, our boast, our assurance that things are good, we see in the cross of Jesus where the Father said, or where He said on the basis of the Father's pronouncement, it is finished. It's done. It's satisfied. You know what my fear is for us collectively? Some of us are insecure for the wrong things, and some of us are secure for the wrong things. Our, our, our boast, our confidence, our faith for some is not actually in the cross and what Jesus has done, but it's in what we have done. I love the old hymn. We don't, we don't sing it here. Actually, I didn't sing it growing up either. It was only when I was in Los Angeles and was, had access to a church that would sing really old hymns that I came across it. But maybe you know this, these lines. They're good. My faith has found a resting place. From guilt my soul is freed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. Friends, we need this as believers. Our confidence must come from the cross and nowhere else. Do you remember it was Paul who said it this way? That the cross was his only boast. His only boast. What is it that you boast in? You know what Paul could have boasted in? Let me make this real for you for a second. Like He could have boasted in, and he says this several times, his ethnicity, his intelligence, his authority, his morality, and his experiences. When you walk into a party, for example, and there's a bunch of people in the room, <laughs> like, like what is it that actually gives you the confidence to speak to other people? It's like, well, I actually have this kind of education, or I lead this kind of business, or I've actually done these kind of things, or I'm better than so-and-so. Like, like, that's the kind of stuff that he's warning against here. Our faith must be in the cross and what Jesus has done. Not in success in ministry or money, not in power or position, not in beauty and health, not in respect and recognition. Like, if that is what you find your confidence in, if that is where you seek to have your faith strengthened, you will always either display prideful selfishness or prideful despair. You never live up to the standard until you see the standard met in Jesus. And you will think that you're living it when you're really not until you see the standard met in Jesus. Michael Reeves said it this way, The seed of all sickness in the Christian life is the failure to boast in the cross. The seed of all health is boasting in the cross. 
Yet how easy it is to think we can move on from these basics of the gospel. We say things like, of course, of course the cross, of course the gospel, but what I really need is. And Jesus says here, no, what you really need is to know that I am dying for you according to the sovereign plan of God, and this is your righteousness. The author continues, Through the cross we see a love so fierce it pierces our apathy and overwhelms our desire for other things. At the cross we see the majestic goodness of Christ and the sweet security we can have in Him. That is why it can transform the vicious, the sad, the despairing, and the selfish into joy-filled, radiantly generous, and kind saints. (laughs) Friends, we need this confidence from the cross. And I say this quickly. The world needs this confidence in the cross as well. You thought you were insecure. Think of those that you love and that you work with and that labor alongside you, your family members that you see from time to time. Why is it that they treat you so poorly or they act so pridefully? It's because they're working to try to justify themselves to someone they know not who. They never actually know if things are right between them and God. That is not something for you to be frustrated about. That is something for you to be broken over. They need confidence and clarity that can only come from looking to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that must be to where we point them. And so this class first taught in the upper room. The preparation for Jesus' death and departure is aimed at heart objectives. Not merely head objectives. Not merely hand objectives. I can't pass out a sheet of paper to you today and say, here, fill out these questions, let me grade it, and I'll tell you exactly where you are in your discipleship with Jesus. I could never assess that. There is nothing out there where where you will ever have that level of confidence in your understanding of where you are with the Lord, and yet we do have something. What we should be experiencing, and we assess this ourselves, and we assess it in the community of faith, do we have assurance by the Spirit from the Father and the Son? Are you convinced that you have access to truth firmer truth? Are you growing in truth? Is your confidence in the truth increasing? That's what Jesus intends for you. Second, do you have peace? Peace from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. I'm not talking about just like your blood pressure is low all the time and you never experience hard times. I'm talking about you knowing in your heart that things are right between you and God and you can apply that to the worst of circumstances around you. That's when you know you're getting it. The third, love for the Son with the Father. It's your heart of love for Jesus, your appreciation for Him, your joy in in what He is doing and, and who He is. Is that increasing? And then finally, confidence in the Son through the Spirit. Do you look at the cross and know that all is well? How's it going? A few years ago, I was uh, geeking out over this um, desire that I had to quantify my life. It's a dorky thing, I know. But I felt like if I could give myself a numerical score 
I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I'm, I'm in it now. <laughs> I felt like if I could give myself a numerical score in the areas that mattered, that I would be able to produce the changes that I wanted to see. And it came from this maxim, maybe you've heard it before, um, you get what you expect and you get what you inspect. So I'm like, okay. Well, at that time, I'm managing a very successful chicken restaurant. <laughs> no, we were making good money, millions of dollars a year. And what I loved about it is that uh, we could measure, we could measure everything. At Chick-fil-A, there's a measurement for everything. There's four in particular that, that we would look at that kind of balanced one another. But people call them KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. Like, and I was like, okay, well, if this works for Chick-fil-A, I can use this for my life. I'm not kidding. This is going to sound so stupid. <laughs> I made an Excel spreadsheet with KPIs for every major area of my life. So I had one for physical health. I had one for my relationship with my wife. I have one for a relationship with my kids, I have one for church, and I have one for community. And no kidding, I'm not normally this way, but in that season, I was so sold on the numbers that I actually made it all come up with an aggregate score, and I could score myself <laughs> on how I was doing in life. <laughs> can you imagine, look, can you imagine how that conversation goes down with your wife? Like, I think in our home right now, we're scoring a here, and, you know, if you could do X and Y and Z, we could get it up to a blah, blah. She, <laughs> she tolerated me <laughs> for that year and a half span. And anyway, it, it, was a, it was a failure. It was a total failure. I found out later that I wasn't the first one to ever try to do such a thing. Um, I'm in good company. Benjamin Franklin also tried to quantify his life. You read it in his biography. He created a list of all the things that he thought he needed to be to be virtuous, and he would measure it every week. And what he wanted to do was uh, begin to like erase trouble areas as he was improving. And he eventually gave up on the project because he thought it was futile. One of the wisest men that ever walked the United States soil admitted that he couldn't do it. So learning from Franklin, learning from experience. I'm like, this is hopeless. I can't do this. And I kind of gave up. But I still craved the numbers. I still craved some clarity. And I still find myself doing it now. I have regular talks with one of our elders about how do we quantify such and such. And I know that it shouldn't be, listen, don't worry, I'm not an idiot, total idiot. I know that I can't quantify the success of our church on the basis of the budget or how many people are here or how big our building is, or whatever. I get that. But at the same time, I'm like, shouldn't we be measuring something? And then I found it. This guy, who was an elder at my brother's church, told me how they did their job reviews. And it wasn't the answer, but I thought it was a step in the right direction. Instead of trying to quantify somebody like on a scale of 1 to 10, or 1 to 100, or whatever... He said, these things are too inflexible and you need to use some better language to assess your growth. He said, so consider the key areas of your performance and then have somebody ask you who's in authority whether or not you see evidence of progress or need help. It's like, wow, that's actually really good. You could apply that to anything. 
Your health, do you see evidence of progress or do you need help? With your marriage, do you see evidence of progress or do you need help? It's a little more flexible, right? It's not a number game at this point. I would have you, friends, consider this. Just as a, it's not the way, but maybe a way we could see it. Are we really picking up what Jesus is laying down? And how if you just do some quiet assessment, maybe on your own this afternoon, and then with somebody you love and trust that knows Jesus, and ask about firmer truth, deeper peace, higher love, stronger faith. Do you, do you see evidence of progress or do you need help? Ask that of yourself. Maybe ask somebody else, do you see evidence of progress? Or do you need help? You have all that you need in Jesus. And He intends for you to be growing in these ways. His, he does not grade on such an impossible level that you would never succeed. He has provided all that you need through His death and resurrection. That's the point. If you find yourself saying, I need help in every one of those, guess where you look? to what Jesus has already done. Final word. Some of you friends don't need help. You need hope. You have no hope of being in a right relationship with God because you are still neglecting to come to faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know this isn't a self-improvement project. There is nothing that would put you into the kind and good graces of God apart from what Christ has already accomplished in His death and resurrection. And you should even now look to Him by faith. So my prayer for us as we leave here today is that we would walk out calm, confident, contented. Not in ourselves, but in Christ and what He's accomplished. Let me pray for that. And then we'll sing a song of testimony about that and be dismissed together. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would continue. I know he's doing it, but that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts in these ways. Or strengthen, deepen, progress our trust in your word and our experience of your peace and our understanding of the cross and also our enjoyment of Jesus and our love for Him. Lord, mark us by that. And where we're struggling, may we continue to look to the right resources. May we continue to point other brothers and sisters in Christ to the right place. And for those who have no hope, for those who are not in relationship with Jesus, please draw them in even today. Lord, give us that kind of joy and peace and trust and love here. Even this week, in Jesus' name I pray and ask it. Amen.